I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. Thank you for joining me again to continue our conversation with Charles Grünheiser. Last time, we spoke about how the optimistic view over pessimism is the way for the media to shape our lives in general. We spoke about COVID-19 and the democracy in the U.S. and the future outcome of the election and so many topics that were driven by data and by an approach that favors optimism. Charles has been, for more than 40 years, one of the most beloved and reliable figures in Dutch news media. In the mid-80s, he represented the Dutch television in the United States, based in Washington, to cover all U.S. news. And he was then an anchor on Head Capital, one of the most important news shows in Dutch television and on Nova. And then in 1996, he returned back to the United States where he became the appointed bureau chief for NOS TV and radio. Nowadays, Charles is an independent writer. He's a speaker, he's a consultant, and he's written many columns and a number of best-selling books on American culture and politics. I think there is a mega reason for optimism that our children don't listen to us because, man, we, <laughs> we effed up. Like, seriously, don't listen to us. We're a horrible generation. We got it all wrong. It's like, you know, this is a good attitude. I didn't listen to my parents either, I tell you. There you go. So let's continue on the same track. And you don't have to answer all of them if it's a topic that you're not interested in. Those young generations, they are suffering. Relationships are really becoming very different. I mean, in my time, when I wanted to marry my wonderful ex-wife, Nibel, I had to court her for a few years. And, you know, I had to, like, seriously, like, we were friends. And it took me, I, I think, a couple of years until she said, okay, I'll consider you. And I had to do those romantic things and show up and get flowers and all of that wonderful thing. Now it's a swipe. And the whole intimacy, the connection behind relationships is no, a bit on the decline. It's an unusual, very weird world. Where do you think this is going? It's hard to say. Because, you know, this whole dating scene that changed so drastically, I totally agree. I don't know where this is going to end. Most of the time when you see, you know, rapid changes, uh, eventually things will turn back in a way. But I don't know. I mean, technology yeah. makes things possible that were unthinkable when we were young. And I see it with my children. And you see it around you. I mean, I truly, I don't know. At the same time, if you look at statistics of marriages that started on a dating site, basically, there's nobody married for 25 years after starting on a dating site. Yeah, we don't know if that's what happened. Yeah. So far, the statistics are not bad. Marriages that started on a dating site are, you know, are pretty stable on average. In a way, I grew up in a small village in the north of Holland, and I didn't have too much of a choice when it came to girls. Right now, you have plenty of choice. And if you have Whatever your preferences are, you can find somebody and you can 
in a way, I think the good part about it, uh, you can actually, you know, pick and choose. And again, your statistics are not bad so far. I don't know. It's a fascinating <laughs> subject, but I'm not an expert. I, I'm, not, I'm not a participating expert. But you still remain to find an optimistic side of it. Okay, so let's continue on technology. Technology, oh man, did you see that recent documentary, The Social Dilemma? I mean, definitely one of the top reasons I left Google is the idea that we're no longer enjoying any kind of privacy at all. We're, as a matter of fact, not even enjoying any kind of uh, choice at all. Because when you really think about what the media has done to us, by conditioning us, you know, this now is happening at microtransactions by biasing what you get to see through artificial intelligence machines and so on and so forth. So social media has gone, I'm sure you're going to say there is a few good things about social media, but there is a lot of bad about social media. Where do you think this is going? Well, actually, you know, I'm, I'm a Twitter user and I love Twitter. And I love Twitter because I have, my timeline is my news feed. When I wake up in the morning, I start looking at Twitter. I don't read a newspaper. I don't watch news. I go to Twitter. And on my Twitter feed, I have the New York Times and the Washington Post and the Guardian, the Economist and Brookings Institute and a lot of, you know, serious stuff. For me, it's great. And everybody who's, I'm quite a bit on television here, so I get a lot of from people who don't <laughs> like me or don't like what I'm saying or what I'm doing. So I have to block people and mute people every single day. So that's a little five minutes okay. I use every day to get out. Yes. If you keep doing that, your timeline cleans up. And actually, I like it. Of course, there's a lot of rough stuff going on. And, you know, the manners on social media are pretty poor, to say cautiously. And I'm not optimistic. But at the same time, I see my kids, you know, they switch already to totally different networks. I'm not sure is Facebook going to survive 10 years from now when the younger generation is, is really growing up. says, Facebook, mm, that's for my mom. It's for my daughter. That is for yes. my mom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's for I don't the, know. For the most and the charts of the world, you know, Facebook is not for the young ones, yeah. We can no longer talk to the shareholder of American Steel, of all those huge companies that totally went under and nobody even remembers them. At some point in time, they thought we're the king of the world, right? These big companies. And they went all under. These companies, I don't know, whether Google or Apple or Microsoft or Facebook goes under eventually, I don't know. If you look at the Fortune 500, and if you look at the Fortune 500 30, 40 years ago and compared to the Fortune 500 right now, most of the companies who were in the Fortune 500 40 years ago are gone. Maybe they're not really, really gone in the sense that they no longer exist, but they're no longer in the Fortune 500. Things change and things keep changing. You know that, I know that. We just don't know in which direction. Again, the Frightful Five, right? Google, Facebook, et cetera, the Frightful Five. I would say at least two or three of those will eventually not survive. If you look at history, if you look wow. at the statistics of you know, companies going under eventually who think we will never go under because we're powerful, we have a monopoly, we'll eventually go under. I never thought of it that way. I never thought of it that way. Of course, I can try to break your optimism by saying, but the companies that will come afterwards will be worse, but I have no data to support that. Yeah. Who would have thought, like, I just talked about Airbnb, where our daughter works. I mean, the business model is so simple, but nobody came up with the idea of this business model until these guys started it. You know Netflix, right? Yeah. I remember Netflix with its little DVDs, children's movies and movies for my wife and I. And we, you know, we switched them around and put them in a little envelope in the mailbox outside. And two days later, we had a new DVD. So at some point, it was broadband all of a sudden. And Netflix was almost going under. Now they're the biggest TV producer in the world. Yeah. Amazing, really. Astonishing. And from a standpoint of entrepreneurship, it's unbelievable and it's great. It's terrific. 
But will they be the biggest one, biggest TV producer 25 years from now? I guess not. Who's going to be the next biggest producer 25 years from now? I don't know. They probably don't even exist. Maybe the entrepreneur who starts that company is still in kindergarten. I don't know. Mm. Do you think Netflix is good for our world? Um, I don't use it as much. I know a lot of people use it a lot and are binge-watching series and movies, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, in this time of Corona, it's great because you can go to the, yeah, you can go to the movies and then you sit with 25 people. Well, I think it's fine if you do it too much, but it's with everything. I mean, yeah, I think this is the theme that you know, an engineer like me who observes patterns. If I was to summarize Charles, it's basically there is good in everything. There is bad in everything. Look at the data and you'll find out everything will change. And and particularly if you look at data long term, if you look at it long term, you see different patterns. Stay away from the flash fires. Stay away from, you know, the short term craziness, breaking news. I mean, leave that alone. I mean, it's part of my work. I'm a journalist. I do breaking news. But if you really want to analyze what's going on, try to focus on the long term. I love that view of the world. I mean, in an interesting way, it's the truth, right? And maybe as I resist you, just to try and break your optimism, the truth is I'm resisting you because I'm taught to be a journalist. I'm taught by the years of observing how information is reported. I'm taught, like every one of us, to say, no, no, something's wrong with this. It can't be all good. It can't have any good in it at all. We're so conditioned to believe that something's wrong with everything, while in reality, there is a lot of right at the same time. You know, let me give you one example. I've been a TV reporter for a long time. In the late 80s, when Reagan was still president, he had his uh, summit meetings with Mikhail Gorbachev, the Russian the Soviet leader, that. remember? Yeah. And he went to Geneva, he went to Washington, Reykjavik, Moscow, and I covered these summits. And I remember Reagan was, you know, he's a hawk. He was a conservative. And yeah. he could uh, tell uh, jokes about the Soviets for an hour and a half straight. But he had his meetings with Mikhail Gorbachev, still the Soviet Union, right? And we couldn't imagine, you know, the Soviet Union collapsing two years later. And they were talking about missiles. They were talking about nuclear arms. And it was the beginning of a development where the number of nuclear warheads in the world started declining. And it has declined incredibly. 60, 70, 80% less nuclear warheads now than in 1988. Correct. When they met in Moscow and later in Washington. I remember they signed the INF Treaty. Trump left, I mean, left the INF Treaty. But it was, it's still true that the number of missile hats in the world is way, way, way down. And if I tell that an audience during a lecture or a theater program, I tell people, you know, it was a quite successful operation what Reagan did back then with Gorbachev and the presidents after him. And they said, really? Because they tend to focus on, you know, the nuclear risk, the nuclear danger. Of course, it's still there. They should get rid of all of them. But if you get rid of 60, 70, 80% of them, we're on our way. And that should, in my view at least, make people hopeful. I think that's the core of my message. Try to focus on that positive stuff because it gives you hope and it gives you energy. It's like Martin Luther King said. If you can fly, run. If you can run, walk. If you can walk, crawl. Keep going. Keep going. And the interesting thing, I mean, I was reading your book. And if you combine your story, which is very much a personal story about yourself, and you talk to people individually, right? I mean, you have to, you know, look at the way you organize your life. It's a very people, individual-oriented message. My message is more global or international or large scale. If you combine your, I mean, more individual-oriented 
approach and my more global approach, and you put them together, it's one and one is two. Yeah. But if you truly combine them, then one and one is three in my, in my view. And if you look at it that way, I mean... Absolutely. I believe that everything you can do globally, you have to do individually first. And everything you do individually, you can do globally. Again, I'm writing now a, a book about... I'm almost done with a book that's called Scary Smart. It's a, a view of artificial intelligence, which can give you a lot of reason to be afraid and worried and pessimistic. But in reality, it also can give you a lot of reason to be optimistic because... There is a lot of promise there if we get this done right. And believe it or not, my view is that this has to be done on the individual scale first. I need to change some things about me. And as I change those things, they start to have a global impact that combined can change our world and welcomes a form of intelligence that works for us and not against us. And I think people tend to, to forget that element of the personal side that I actually matter, that that one extra vote matters. And that vote is not just by going to the voting offices or, or putting something in a box. That vote is the next tweet you put out there. It's the next action you do in a supermarket. Every single little thing that you do is another vote. It just sways humanity in a specific direction. But you know, Mo, when I do lectures, I quite often ask people about this 21st century thing. I mean, what's the big issue from the previous century. I also asked them quite often, give me a few names of international leaders of the last 60, 70 years that are really inspiring me, that really give you hope, are really big examples for humanity. And I always get the same names, Gandhi, Mandela, Martin Luther King, Kennedy. I also have uh, Angela Merkel, actually. Uh, yeah. What is the thing that combines them and basically they have in common is hope. And Churchill and Roosevelt as well. Imagine Churchill and Roosevelt. Imagine they would have said to each other in 41, 42, you know what? I mean, this Hitler guy, we're not going to beat this guy. Forget it. No. Yeah. They said it's going to be horrible. Uh, I mean, blood, sweat, and tears. It's going to be a long, long, terrible struggle, but eventually we're going to prevail. And they did. Imagine Mandela after, you know, being on Robben Island for so long and locked up by the apartheid regime in South Africa. He came out. And he got the Nobel Peace Prize together with the last white president of South Africa. That's, that's the way I'd like to think. And that's why I truly admire these people. Gandhi, right? A colonialism in, in India. I mean, what is easier than being bitter and being revengeful and being angry? No. He stuck his hand out and said, let's work together. Yeah. And it's so beautiful the way you put it, because you're not just saying hope is that naive romantic view of the world. It's the actual fuel that gets us to move in the direction for which we hope optimistically, passionately, and make others see a different path, if you want, see a different way. It's so powerful. I use from John Kennedy that he had a lot of great quotations, of course, but I use the one from the speech where he announced the Apollo project to land on the moon. Yeah. And he said, before this decade is over, we put a man on the moon. But the sentence after that is more interesting because he says, we don't do it because it's easy. We do it because it's hard. And that's such an inspiring message. And it actually did. And of course, it had also to do with the Cold War and, you know, the thing with the Sputnik of the Soviets. Of course, I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on. But this idea, we don't do it because it's easy. We do it because it's hard. And they did it despite all the problems and setbacks. And like everybody's setbacks, you and I know that. But he said, let's do it, and we don't do it because it's easy, because it's hard. And for me, that's truly inspiring. 
in the same way Martin Luther King is inspiring, in the same way Mandela says, you know, you have to make friends in order to achieve success and to make things happen. You have to make friends. By the way, tell it to Trump, make friends. <laughs> you have to go back to that. <laughs> Can I stay on this for a second? We do it because it's hard, because a lot of people will say this is the hardest time humanity has ever faced. We really are going through very, very tough unprecedented, but also, no, I mean, I laugh when I say unprecedented because Spanish flu was very similar, right? But, you know, let's say unprecedented in our lifetime. So this whole COVID-19, the economic impact of that, the uncertainty about it, can you have hope around that too? Eventually, I don't know how bad is it going to be. I mean, right now here in Holland and here in Europe, for example, I mean, the number of cases are going up number of people in, in hospitals is going up. It's very worrisome. I mean, there's no way around it. I mean, I don't know how bad it's going to be in the next couple of months when the weather gets colder and people get inside and huddle inside. I don't know. Oh, I don't know. It's worrisome. I stay, you know, away from people as much as I can, which is not very pleasant, but that's the way it is. I don't know. I hate to say it, but I'm slightly pessimistic. <laughs> oh, I got him. I got him. Finally. <laughs> I got him. No, but I'll then play the optimist, if you don't mind me, if let's you and I look at the longer term of this. So yeah, I mean, short term, I think everyone agrees the next few months might be challenging. But then what happens in the long term? The economy will change, society will change, the way we go about our lives will change. Traveling, going on vacation, uh, go to an office or not. I mean, I'm talking to you, to you from my home. You're in Montreal, right? Yeah. Um, but you know, my kids in Malmo, Sweden, San Francisco, and New York, I mean, work from home all the time. Yeah. And I'm slightly worried because one of the things that's really, you know, hard for people, imagine young people getting hired now in a company, have never ever worked in the office, have never had, you know, water cooler talk, had never the Friday afternoon drinks and everything with colleagues because they start working for the company and they start working from the bedroom. God grief. So that must be hard for these kids. Really hard. I mean, our children were already in their jobs when it happened. So they do know the office. They do know colleagues and they know who they're talking to. But how is this going to work out, you know, in the next one, two or three years? You know, there's going to be vaccination available in the next, I don't know, probably next three weeks if I listen to Donald Trump. Uh, <laughs> a couple of months when I listen to Dr. Fauci. But that's, we have to hope technology will help us out. And the pandemic in 1918, 1919, when millions of people were killed by the flu, they had no clue about the flu. There was no vaccination. And right now we have the option and, you know, actually people work on it all over the world. A couple of hundred companies working on vaccinations. On the TV show I'm doing, we had a Dutch company who are very hopeful and actually got approved by the FDA for a vaccination and go on a 60,000 person trial now. So that's pretty hopeful. And other companies are hopeful as well. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, let's hope and pray that's going to work out. I'm actually quite certain, believe it or not. So I'm, I'm now the optimist. And I'll tell you, statistically, if we managed without technology to beat the Spanish flu, zero technology. We had nothing. We had no idea. We had no data. We had no statistics. We had nothing. We just had social distancing at the time. And we could manage to beat it. My belief is that I'll say we're going to have to brace for winter But then beyond winter, yeah. my, my expectation is it will be a, just another blip on the chart. The statistics of our world in data will probably prove you right. I mean, all the, the previous crises and, and huge problems like a war or a pandemic or another crisis eventually turn out to be a blip in the statistics and in the graphs. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Totally. Life goes on. 
I have one more very, very interesting topic, topic that is very dear to my heart. But before I go there, I'll make my regular announcement for our listeners saying, if you're here, rate it five stars, talk about it on social media. You love this podcast. You love what Charles is saying. So do your part. Seriously, please do your part. I think it really matters that others hear those optimistic messages and brighten their days. My last question is very, very, very pushy. It's something that I... I really in my heart feel bad about, which is the idea of fake news. The idea that it's very, 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 very hard in the modern world to actually know what is true at all anymore. There are so many sources of information and it becomes almost impossible to know what's right. That's true. So where is this going? What can we do? What is the role of a journalist? What is the role of a of an audience, of each and every one of us. How can we combat this? I don't want to live in a world where I don't know the truth anymore. Fake news is horrible. I mean, they insult people. They try to damage people's reputations. But at the same time, I did a bit of research and looked at reports and analysis of actually the number of fake news stories compared to regular news and regular information on on more quality type uh, sources. And then it turns out that the percentage of real fake news in the total stream of information that's available for you and me and for everybody else who goes to Google or whatever, is tiny. It's one, two, maybe 3%. And quite a lot of this stuff is read and you know, consumed by people who really like it. Like people like science fiction or like what, whatever they it's like. It's like entertainment so they, they, sort of, yeah? Yeah, they are in their fake news bubble and they like it. And I see, you know, since I'm in a way here in all of this public figure, I get quite a bit of the stuff uh, every day, but that's the way it works. And people try to suggest I'm doing things and, and writing things that I actually don't do or write, but, you know, that's the way it is. But if you look at the, the actual amount of fake news compared, to the, again, to the total amount of information available to us and through Google and, and other sources, it's not very big and it's very questionable how many people actually change their mind if you really hardcore right-wing pro-Trump or pro-guns and everything. I mean, and you read fake news about left-wing people and about the socialists and about the communists that are trying to take over our country. I mean, that may be fake news, but it doesn't change their mind. They truly enjoy reading that stuff because they hate these people. Okay, <laughs> I mean, it's free country. But I'm not so worried because the other part of the story is that the, the amount of quality information for you and me available every single day, and I pay for quite a bit of stuff. I have a lot of subscription on serious sources like The Atlantic or The Economist. I mean, I like that stuff and I pay for it. But if you don't want to pay for it, there's so much great quality stuff available for every single person who goes on the internet. I mean, I grew up in a little town in the north of Holland, and there was one TV channel, black and white. And we had a daily newspaper, Catholic newspaper. I'm from a Catholic family. That was it. Yeah. That was it. And when I went to high school, that was my background of information. I mean, very, very limited. If I compare that to our children who are in their the mid-20s and how they grew up, the information that's available for them. I mean, that's, if you try to even it out, you know, the evil of bad news and fake news compared to the incredible amount of information available to a lot of people. And I talked to, I mentioned my children, but imagine Mo, countries where information was not readily available. Also the countries where you are from, yeah, exactly. in Muslim countries. Yeah. Talk about the position of women, young women, girls, who can read now, you know, about history, about all kinds of health issues, can read about other women, what they accomplish. That's 
unbelievable. There's a little, I think it's not on our world in data, but a similar site where you see the whole Middle East and Northern Africa, from Morocco all the way to Iran, where you see a comparison between a generation, a thing between over 65 and a generation between 15 and 35 or something. And it's colored. Different countries have red and blue colors. The more red they are, the less people can read and write. The 65 and over is primarily red because they can't read and write. If you look at the younger generation, the colored in blue, in a lot of these countries, 80, 90, 95% of the younger generation can read and write. That's incredible. That is progress. That is eventually the basis, I think, eventually of an Arab revolution. And it has been in the past. But it's another subject. No, but it has been in the past. I mean, anyone that really knows the roots of the Arab Spring, it's the idea of being informed of things that may have always happened, but they did not happen in the public eye, if you want. You know, the public was not aware of it. Can I ask something, and please don't be offended, does that mean you're assuming that what CNN or major news networks are sending us is not slightly fake? You call it quality content, but I see that it's biased. It's blinded sometimes. It's either biased sometimes with an agenda, if you take certain networks, or sometimes biased just by simply focusing on the negative. I mean, if we assume that the truth, the only definition of the truth is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, then if lying, which is nothing but the truth, is one way of of making it fake, but other ways is not to tell me the whole truth and to tell me only the negative side of it. Well, actually, one of the things, in one way, I, I do agree with you, for example, when it comes to CNN. I'm pretty disappointed with CNN, actually. And the reason I'm disappointed with CNN, because a few of their anchors are extremely biased. I may sometimes agree with them. Uh, their rants against Donald Trump, again, whether I like it or not, or whether I agree or disagree, it's but I think they go... Be. I don't think so. I think they're, in a way, the left wing Fox News. I don't like Fox News for it. And I think CNN should go back to what it's supposed to do, factual information. And I think right now, actually, and they primarily also in, now in, in the Trump era, for me at least, it's quite often too much anti-Trump and yeah. anti-Republicans, anti-GOP. And I, it doesn't make them very credible. Like it doesn't make Fox News very credible. They're only against the left. Yeah, it is a bit fake. To tell me half of the truth. Yeah. For me, it's too much. I mean, even, even, you know, growing up in the Middle East where the BBC World Service was really the most credible source of sort of unbiased news. I spent a few months in the UK during the lockdown and I have to admit, you know, there is a bias to negativity in the BBC. There is a bias to cynicism, if you want. Everything is wrong. Everyone is evil. Everything is a conspiracy. And that is not the whole truth. You know, it's in a way we need to find media that is, I don't know if you know the joke about the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, where if you give a, a very complex artificial intelligence machine, all of the problems of the universe, it would come back to you, then answer and says, I found the answer to all of the problems in the universe. It's 42, right? And, you know, and for someone like me, who is highly mathematical, highly factual, can you just give me the facts, please? Give me the truth, I don't want opinions. I don't want your perception. I don't want your agenda. I don't want only the negative. Tell me one guy fell three meters, broke two bones. There were three pins in the operation. This is fact. The rest, the hype, the negativity, the bias, that's not truth. That's fake news. Again, I'm, I'm quite disappointed with CNN. But on the other hand, you know, I mean, there's so much else available. I'm not totally 
have to rely on CNN or Fox News or anything. I mean, I can go anywhere. That's why I mentioned my, my Twitter feed, which is very, a lot of different sources I use on a daily basis, like 538.com or Real Clear Politics when it comes to elections, for example. There's plenty of quality stuff around there. And actually, sometimes I do like to, you know, listen to these biased CNN anchors because it's quite interesting. And sometimes they get you the extreme side of something. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes it's amusing, but, you know, <laughs> it, you know, it can get a little aggravating because I'm truly very interested in American news, as you know. Uh, when I switch on CNN, which is one of the American channels we can watch here in Holland, quite often you fall into one of these shows that are very opinionated. And I would say, you know, give me the facts, please, instead give of, you know, facts. give me your yeah. opinions. Although I sometimes totally agree with their strong opinions, but it's a different sort. Exactly. I agree or disagree. I just want the facts before we talk about opinions. Or parse and I think that changed actually with CNN. If I remember well, I mean, 20, 25 years ago, that was different. Yeah. They were called by the right wing, of course, the Clinton News Network, remember, in, in, in the <laughs> 90s. Yeah. Uh, and I think that was not fair. But in a way, they are now more a lefty, probably also as a reaction against, you know, the whole Fox News lobby and because they're so powerful and strong and talking about strong opinions. They're even, you know, more stronger to the right than CNN is to the left, but the Sean Hannity's of this world. Yeah. But I'm sure if I asked you where this is heading, you're going to find an optimistic piece of data that says the news is going to be impartial. Everything is going to be great. Now, well, I was listening to an interesting interview between Sean Hannity and Glenn Beck on Fox News a couple of months ago. And they, they were talking, you know, about socialism and the left wing and et cetera, et cetera. And at some point, I think Glenn Beck asked Sean Hannity or the other way around, I'm not even sure. He said, you know, imagine Donald Trump and the Republicans losing the election in November 2020. And then they said, you know, if we lose, that's going to be the end of the country as we know it. <laughs> yes. Actually, that's, that's a fact. It will be the end of the country as we know it. Yeah, but not the country they would like to see. They would like to see, you know, that's going to be the end of the country where, you know, Archie Bunker was possible and where Donald Trump was possible and Mitch McConnell was powerful. Yes, it could be the end of that country. Yeah, it could be eventually, you know, to turn out a country that is more, you know, less unequal, more just, more fair, hopefully cleaner with a, you know, decent public health system, etc. So, yes, I think they're right. It's going to be the end of the country as they know it, but in a different way that they would wish for. Yeah. Do you think in one word, yes or no, do you think that will happen? Will we get Trump again? I think he will lose. You think he will lose? If I look at their behavior, it's not like the behavior of somebody says, you know, we'll manage. Mm. When I look at their behavior, it's sheer panic. Remember, Mo, 2016, the convention of the Republicans, there was a very powerful never trump movement remember republicans saying no to donald trump they sit on their hands they kept quiet but it's still going on and you know the coalition that brought donald trump to the white house in 2016 he had three million votes less than hillary clinton when the electoral college gave him the white house which is no that's the law yeah. he cannot lose compared to 2016 he cannot lose any voters from that very fragile coalition that brought him the White House. And in the last three or four years, he is making more enemies and not more friends. Eventually, in the long run, if you want to be successful, make friends, not enemies. I will end with that. It's been an incredibly refreshing view to meet the optimistic journalist of our world. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. It was a pleasure being with you. 
I appreciate your friendship. I appreciate your wisdom. I think what you're doing is amazing. Loved every part of the conversation. Thank you so much, Charles. It was my pleasure. You have a great day. Okay. So it's just uh, days away from finding out if Charles' prediction on Donald Trump is going to hold true and on the response of the U.S. citizens to that. Ooh, interesting times. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I would really appreciate your help spread this message by rating the podcast five stars. Do it now. Don't wait, please. And follow me, find me on social media and tell me what you think of those conversations. Share your opinion openly. I'd love to have a conversation. I'm Mo underscore Gaudet on Instagram and mo.gaudet.personal on Facebook, Mo Gaudet on LinkedIn and mgaudet on Twitter. Ask me questions and check if I will answer back. I try to answer every message that I receive in person. Thank you so much for giving me the alibi to have such interesting conversation with such magnificent people. I love you all for listening and I hope to see you here next time.